You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. Here's a fun fact. The word bear isn't the original name for the animal. It's actually a taboo avoidance term, sometimes called a Noah name. It's believed that Proto-Germanic tribes likely replaced their original word for bear with a more generic term that meant either brown one or wild animal, out of fear that speaking the creature's true name would cause it to appear. Now this kind of taboo is pretty common. In Swedish, the word for wolf was replaced by the word for stranger. And the Salish languages have, collectively, over 30 words for black bear and over 40 for grizzly bear. My favorite being the Squamish word, and I hope I'm saying this right, Sheetsin, which literally translates to eldest sibling. There are some other taboo avoidance terms for a different kind of creature that you also might have heard. The good people, the little people, the fair folk, Jackies and Little Johns. These are all names for fairies, useful if you want to avoid what might be considered impolite directness and what might result in unwanted attention. If you're confused, don't worry. Most of us have grown up with the romantic idea that fairies are magical and beautiful human-like creatures with butterfly wings who live in mushrooms, collect children's teeth, and sprinkle fairy dust on orphans and teach them how to fly. But that's a very Victorian idea that has been Disney-fied throughout the decades to become a child-friendly source of aesthetics and entertainment. The truth is that fairies were once feared and seen as powerful beings who could easily ruin your day if you dared to disrespect them. Calling fairies the good folk was in some ways like a prayer. But tradition tells us that we'd be better off if we avoided speaking of them entirely, just to be safe. This kind of taboo can sometimes make a fairy story hard to recognize. You have to watch for subtle clues, listen for the taboo terms, or be familiar with their ways. In Canada, the bulk of fairy stories can be found in Newfoundland, and I'd like to tell you about them, but doing so might put me at risk. You see, according to tradition, I'd be risking my life or my sanity, or the life and sanity of my loved ones, by daring to speak of them. And by listening, you too could be at risk. Thankfully, there are precautions we can take. One of my fellow storytellers, a grandmother from Belle Island, Newfoundland, apparently had quite the collection of fairy stories and loved to share them with her friends and neighbors over tea and after dark. She believed in and feared the fairies, and she knew that they didn't like it when people talked about them, so she came up with a clever solution. Before every story session, as she brought cups of steaming tea to the table, she would announce which day of the week it was, and then declare, matter-of-factly, and the fairies won't hear us. This little ritual would ensure the safety of the storyteller and the audience, a welcome comfort for those who had to return home in the dark. So let's honor that tradition and welcome whatever protection it can provide. I'm recording this on a Thursday, and the episode will drop on a Thursday. So, here goes. Today is Thursday, and the fairies won't hear us. You're listening to Fireside Canada, my podcast about Canadian legends, lies, and lore. I'm David Williams. Tonight, we're taking a look at a folklore tradition that may have its roots in Europe, but has succeeded in making a home for itself in Newfoundland. The tradition is far too old and complex to cover in just one episode, so I've decided to look at just one kind of story that is especially prevalent on the rock. Centuries of stories of people who have been drawn into the woods by an unseen power, often to their doom. In these stories, we'll discover personal experiences, tall tales meant to thrill and to fright, and legends based on true stories, along with a healthy dose of folk wisdom that can be traced back through the centuries. So close the window, grab some bread, and touch iron, because tonight we'll hear the harrowing tales of those who have been lost in the fairies. Part 1. Liz's Point The headline for Elizabeth Fagan would have read, 
Riverhead Girl Goes Missing, if the newspapers had picked up the story. There's hope in those words, hinting that maybe one could go missing like someone else would go fishing or go berry picking, that one day they might return. But the people in the village knew better. There were whispers over kitchen tables and low grumblings along the shore as the men brought in the catch and the sun sank over the cape. The girl hadn't vanished on her own. She had been taken. It was a fear that many of them hoped they had left behind as they made their way across the Atlantic. They had heard that this newfound land was mostly unpeopled, unhistoried, and therefore wouldn't harbor the same kinds of monsters and phantoms that roamed the old world. But when they came ashore on the rocky beach and looked out over the silver water, teeming with fish, the emerald marshes, barren hills, and ragged treeline, they realized that a timeless, far more powerful force was already rooted in this primeval wilderness. And it was a force that was not kind to trespassers. Liz had learned this firsthand when she left home one mild afternoon to pick berries. It was a trip that she and others had taken a hundred times before, never wandering too deep into the forest and heading for home long before the first shades of twilight. But this time, she hadn't returned. Despite weeks of searching by every able-bodied person in the village, no trace of the girl was ever found. It was as if the entire island had come alive for an instant and swallowed her whole. The truth wasn't far off. The people of the village knew that she was now in the hands of the fairies. Of course, they'd never call them that, so as not to rouse their attention or provoke them further. The fairies were known simply as them, those people, or, somewhat ironically, the good people. That last one served as a kind of prayer, spoken in the hope that the mysterious and uncontrollable forces of the land would be benevolent and merciful. Sometimes it worked. For every ten stories about fairies attacking, kidnapping, or otherwise harming humans and their belongings, there was always one story about the good people healing the sick, enriching the poor, and returning unscathed any wayward humans who haplessly wandered into their domain. So, as the days turned to weeks and the weeks to months, all her family could do was wait, watch the horizon, and hope that the good people, in their kindness, would send Liz home. Three months later, as the winds of autumn sheared the sunlight off the long summer days, the hillsides turned to copper, and the fishermen readied their boats for winter, Mrs. Fagan had sworn up and down a half a dozen times that she had seen Liz staring down at her from the distant tree line, or wandering through the midnight fog that crept along the barrens. But it was always brief, an ephemeral vision, and a sign, she hoped, that the family would soon get the chance to reclaim her daughter. A party was being held near the mouth of the harbor, and though Mrs. Fagan chose to stay home in the hope that Liz would miraculously appear on their doorstep, she encouraged her son to go with his friends and try to forget, at least for the night, his worries about his lost sister. It had rained earlier in the day, but now the moon shone a path of pale light on the black water as the boys made their way down the coast. The air was clear and cool, and the brisk wind was full of the scent of earth, salt, cloudberry, and smoke. As they drew closer to town, they could see golden globes of lantern light bobbing gently along the road as the locals made their way to the party. And here across the harbor, the sound of voices and laughter, and the warm, rapid notes of a reel cutting across the strings of a fiddle. By the time they reached the house, the horizon was a cutout of black silhouettes against a deep blue field of stars. The sound of the rising tide pushing against the rocks urged them inside, where it was all rhythm and light. People were dancing and clapping along with the music, and sharing stories of incredible catches and daring seamanship over plates piled high with fresh smoked salmon and cod, salt pork biscuits with cloudberry jam, and, of course, a generous amount of drink. The young man was pouring himself a second glass when he glanced through the back door, and there she was, 
The dark figure of a girl stood unmoving at the edge of the property, near the base of the stairs that led from the kitchen. Whether frozen in fear or some sort of trance, her arms were limp at her sides, her shoulders and hair glowed in the light of the dying moon, and though her face was hidden in shadow, he knew that it was Liz. Even now, they had her under their control. He could feel her eyes watching him from the darkness, and remembered his mother's stories of seeing Liz at the edge of the wilderness and how she vanished when anyone approached. The young man knew he had to act quickly. He turned his back to Liz and pushed through the crowd and out the front door. He hurried along the grass at the side of the house and crouched near the corner. Liz hadn't moved. She stood near a pile of fishing nets close to the storage shed, her eyes fixed on the golden light beaming from the kitchen. The young man moved through the wet grass behind the weathered remains of a rowboat and crept up behind her. She was wearing the same outfit from the day she had disappeared. Though three whole months had passed and nearly each autumn morning brought rain, her dress was dry and relatively clean, as if it had been taken from the clothesline just a few days prior. He stretched his arms out to the sides, reached past her elbows, and hugged her to his chest. She fell into him like a rag doll, throwing him off balance. Suddenly, three dozen lights appeared from the shadows, surrounded and rushed toward her, attaching themselves to her body. He swung around and dragged his sister backward to the stairs. Her arms, lifted by the lights at her wrists and fingers, bent beneath his grip and floated outward. Her legs kicked forward, and he could feel the fairies were pulling her from his grasp. He climbed the first step. The second. The fairies clung to her knees and ankles. Light from the window crossed her pale neck. The sound of music and dancing grew louder. The third. The fourth. Voices hummed just beyond the door. He knew if he could get her inside and carry her past the threshold, she would finally be safe. But the tighter he held on, the harder they pulled. Her left shoulder slipped from his grasp, and he reached out and caught her right arm with both hands. She raised her head and looked at him with a vacant stare. Then her hand gripped his arm, and her expression shifted to one of recognition and fear. He saw in her eyes the baby sister he had helped raise, the toddler he had played with by the pond, the girl whom he had taken fishing for the very first time, who leaned over the side in wonder, watching the silver wheels of fish flashing in the sunlight. A fire ignited in his chest, and his brow beaded with sweat. He braced his foot against the railing, focused his rage, and heaved as hard as he could, groaning and gritting his teeth as he pulled. His arms shook, his muscles burned, his fingernails dug into his sister's arm until they drew blood, and draining himself of all emotion but anger, he cried out and cursed the fairies. It was at that moment when he lost her. A blast of wind rippled through her moon-streaked hair and dress. Her hand slipped from his, and her eyes and mouth opened in a silent scream. The lights around her glowed with a blinding intensity as her body flew backwards and sank into the shadows. The darkness closed around her waist, head, arms, fingers, and she was gone. Her mother was sitting by the window when the young man came home. He went to her with tears in his eyes and told her that Liz would never return. She took his hand and nodded. She knew. Earlier that evening, as she was washing dishes, Liz had appeared at the kitchen door. Shocked by her sudden appearance, she ran toward her daughter, arms outstretched, saying, Oh, now I have you. Liz flew back and down toward the water. No, you haven't, mother, she said. Her voice carried on the wind. Not now, not ever. Her mother chased her down the hill and across the shore to a rocky point, where she vanished in the fog. That was our last chance, the mother said quietly. She's with the fairies now. She pointed out the window to that barren peninsula and a small silhouette sitting on a rock at the edge of the distant water, gazing at the sea under the starlight. The young man looked at his mother, then back at the beach, but the phantom was gone. 
his mother dropped her hands into her lap and wept. Ever since that night, that lonely stretch of land has been known as Liz's Point, and people used to see her there long after the moon had set, sitting on a rock and staring at the black water, stretching far and away. Part 2. Fairies in Newfoundland The story of Liz's Point comes to us from the communities of Riverhead and St. Mary's, two tiny villages nestled on the southwest shore of Newfoundland's Avalon Peninsula. There are at least three legends about Liz which I've combined to create this single story. As usual, I've taken a bit of creative liberty here and there to tell the tale in my own way, but the key details are all inspired by these three stories and the core elements are all the same. Her name, her community, her mysterious disappearance that's blamed on the fairies, and her sudden, fleeting, and final appearance before a spoken taboo seals her fate. In one version, she's seen by her brother, and in the others, by her mother. But no matter who sees her, the ending is consistent as well. Her brother's cursing, or simply her mother's spoken words, violates some sort of supernatural law, and Liz is lost forever, destined, presumably, to live out the rest of her days with the fairies, and occasionally sit on a rock, stuck between tides, on a point of land that bears her name. These stories are just three of many found in the book Strange Terrain, The Fairy World in Newfoundland, written by Dr. Barbara Rietti. The book caused a bit of a sensation when it was first published back in 1991 because it demonstrated that fairy folklore, often thought of as a quaint, antiquated tradition stranded in 19th century Europe, was alive and well in Canada, or at least in Newfoundland. Most of the island's early settlers came from places like Ireland, Scotland, and England, and while they didn't have much in the way of personal belongings, they brought their beliefs, their religion, their customs, and their folklore. The result is a body of folklore that has a lot in common with the British Isles, with stories about fairies who can appear as full-sized humans, glowing lights, or diminutive creatures about two to four feet in height, dressed in pointy hats and old-fashioned clothing. Now, unlike the modern stereotype, these classic fairies almost never have wings, and are mostly seen running across forest paths or dancing on distant hilltops. At first, they sound pretty harmless, almost cute. When they're not playing music or dancing, they're playing little pranks like stealing your lumber, putting tiny knots in your horse's mane, making a mess in your clean kitchen, or sometimes cleaning your messy kitchen. But then you discover the darker stories of fairies causing people to lose their way or inflicting mysterious illnesses that manifest as sudden, bulging, festering wounds, or kidnapping people, mostly babies and small children, for their own nefarious purposes. Now, Europe is full of stories like these, and as a nation of mostly immigrants and settlers, it makes sense that we find, within Canada, folktales born from other countries. In Quebec, for example, there are stories that are obvious imports from France, featuring kings and queens, knights and monsters. All across the country, there are folktales from China, Germany, Korea, Ukraine, and they're all great stories, but in their telling, they all happened long ago, somewhere else, and to someone else. But these fairy stories are different. The legends that Dr. Rietti and others have uncovered are said to have happened much more recently, often in the storyteller's own lifetime, and somewhere close to their community. The presence and influence of the good people is literally part of the landscape. In addition to Liz's Point near Riverhead, there are other places in Newfoundland that are linked by name to the fairies. There's a Brownie's Flat, for example, in Newman's Cove, a fairy path in Upper Island Cove, a fairy's field in Trepassy, a fairy's pond in Holyrood, and a fairy's nap in Flat Rock. There was also once a fairy rock on the south side hills of St. John's. In St. Joseph's, further up the bay from Riverhead, there is a fairy ridge, which they say should be avoided after dark. Over on the east coast near Fermius, there's Fairy Break. To the north, there's a road in Carboneer called Fairy Run, because not so long ago, people saw fairies running along it. 
And then there's Dinner Hill, near Bishop's Cove, where it's said that fairies would regularly gather for dinner. There are also countless smaller, sometimes nameless places found in countless communities. The marsh just outside of town, the berry patch at the end of the forest, the field at the end of the road, or the railroad tracks at the bottom of the hill. Liz was said to sit on a rock in the landwash, the fleeting point between high and low tide. These are the margins of our communities, the places where the frayed edges of the unpredictable wilderness and reliable civilization just touch, and where two worlds can collide. They can be dangerous places, especially after nightfall, and especially for children, so these stories serve as a powerful warning. Stay away, or the fairies will get you. But what does that mean, exactly? Why are they considered so dangerous? What would happen if you, or someone you loved, were taken by the fairies? Well, in a lot of ways, they personify nature. You might consider them to be chaotic neutral. They can be unpredictable and volatile, sliding up and down the scale from friendly to mischievous to downright dangerous. There is a lot of fantastic fairy folklore just in Newfoundland alone, and if I really want to do it justice, I have to take it slowly. So while I have a lot of stories and thoughts to share about particular fairy phenomena like fairy wounds and changelings, tonight I'm only going to focus on stories of people who have been in the fairies or fairy-led, both terms for people who have been apparently led astray by these curious creatures. So let's do it. Let's explore a few more stories of being lost in the fairies from different parts of the spectrum. Part 3 in the fairies. On the morning of October 1st, 1880, a man named John Ebbs walked into the Central District Court in St. John's, Newfoundland to plead his case against his former employer. The argument seemed simple enough. John had worked the summer season for the defendant, a Mr. J. Hickey, and was now owed summer's wages. But Hickey refused to pay up. The defendant argued that John had been absent for 13 days without leave. This was in violation of their agreement, thus John was owed nothing. But John argued that he had a good reason for his absence. It wasn't his fault, he told the court. It was the fairies. The fairies had carried him away. All he could remember about the day he went missing was that he had left his home two hours before dawn to ensure he got to work on time. But somewhere along the way, he came across a funeral, a crowd, a casket, all before dawn. Then he blacked out and woke up three days later, on the ground, with no memory of what transpired. This actually happened. A man went before a judge and told the court that he failed to show up for work because the fairies got him. He even had the man who found him testify that he was discovered lying shocked and speechless on the ground. Perhaps even more remarkable is the fact that no one questioned John's story. The judge, the lawyers, even his employer were all silent on the matter. Mr. Hickey, the defendant, simply submitted that the days of missed labor should be made up. After considering the case, Judge James Conroy ruled for the plaintiff and ordered the defendant to pay John the amount sued, minus some cash which had already been received. That's right. A man retroactively called in sick with a bad case of the fairies and successfully argued that he was still entitled to his wages. Of course, the details are scarce. We don't know if John Ebbs sued for the entire summer's wages or the whole amount minus 13 days. And though it seems odd that no one questioned his story about being, quote, carried away by the fairies, end quote, we should remember that he wasn't the one on trial. He didn't have to explain why he was away. He only had to prove that he had worked for and earned a summer's wage, except perhaps for those 13 days he was supposedly in fairyland. Now, there are two elements here that deserve a closer look. Even if you're not familiar with fairy folklore, these are details that still stand out. One is that funeral John saw before he lost consciousness. The fact that it was being held in the small hours before dawn suggests that there was something off about the event. 
though it's not described, it could be suggested that John had stumbled upon a funeral not for humans, but for fairies. Fairy funerals are somewhat common in folklore, especially in Europe, where one is expected to stand aside and remove one's cap out of respect. If you don't show that proper respect, or if the fairies feel you have carelessly interrupted their ceremonies, they may temporarily block your path or knock you unconscious until they can finish up and move on. Another interesting detail is that John was apparently unconscious for only three days, but missed a total of 13 days at work. No one seems to have asked John about this discrepancy, likely because it was irrelevant to his lawsuit but there might also have been a cultural reason for their restraint. In many stories where people are, quote, carried off by the fairies, end quote, when they return, if they return, they are fairy-struck, exhibiting physical or mental injury, along with strange dissociative behavior, sometimes speaking gibberish or rendered completely mute, and acting confused for days, months, even years. Some never recover. Many alleged fairy encounters end in injury, madness, or death. So if John Ebbs had indeed been in the fairies, which is another term for the condition, he was fortunate that he was able to recover his faculties and return to his normal life just ten days later. John Ebbs' story wasn't unique. You'll find stories in St. John's and beyond of people going missing only to be found days or even weeks later. Sometimes, like in John's case, they're safe and sound. Oddly so, in some cases. Children, teens, parents, and grandparents have all been found healthy, sated, and completely dry, despite having spent days or weeks in the wilderness, and sometimes being found on the other side of a pond or river, or after a storm, miles away from where they started. Many also appear to have missing time. Though they might have been missing for several days, to them it might feel like only an hour has passed. Aside from their short-term amnesia regarding their ordeal, they seem perfectly fine. Others, however, are not so lucky. In Bishop's Cove, it's said that a man was once taken by the fairies for three days. He was found naked from the waist up, having eaten his sweater out of hunger. He suffered permanent memory loss and, to quote the informant, was never the same after. In the community of Gall Island, a local legend tells of an exceptionally pretty young woman who went berry-picking alone at Gallus Wood Ridge, a place just outside the community reputed to be haunted, and the last known location for many a wayward soul. She left home on a Monday morning, and by Wednesday her parents had called the police after a local search yielded no results. The police were dispatched from Harbor Grace, a larger community in the south, and they searched the wilderness with the help of police dogs on loan from St. John's. After four days of tireless searching, the officers found a person lying unconscious in the tall grass beneath a spruce tree next to a lake, nearly four miles from where the young woman had disappeared. Was it her? Well, the dogs seemed convinced, but it was hard to tell. She had a little bucket of blueberries and another of partridge berries. Both were plentiful at the ridge. She was also wearing the same dress as the young woman who had gone missing, but this person looked to be at least 80 years old. The woman they were searching for was barely 20. They carefully roused the old woman and were shocked to learn that she was indeed the target of their search. She didn't know how she got there, or indeed how she had survived all that time in the wilderness. All she could remember was that she had been walking near the ridge and must have suddenly fallen asleep. Neither she nor the police could explain why she seemed to have aged some 60 years, but the townspeople knew. They knew that the fairies had taken her, likely fed her fairy food, and transformed her into one of their own. Here's one more story, this time from Upper Island Cove. One morning, sometime in the 1930s, a man disappeared while he was out picking blueberries. When night fell and he failed to return home, his parents got worried and went out to search the woods. After several hours of fruitless searching, they returned home to call the police and found him lying face down on the porch. His clothes were filthy and shredded, they ran to his side and carefully turned him onto his back. 
but when they looked upon their son, they nearly fainted. The man's face was so disfigured, it was almost unrecognizable. His left eye had been torn from its socket. His tongue was ripped from his mouth, and every single fingernail and toenail had been removed. His terrified parents rushed inside to call the police, and later, when he had been stabilized, the police gave him a sheet of paper and a pencil and asked him to write what had happened. They looked on anxiously as he drew the pencil across the page with slow, uneasy strokes. When he was finished, he handed the paper to the nearest officer, who slowly turned it in his hands. The young man had written just one word. Fairies. These are some of the more extreme examples of people who have been lost in the fairies. They seem especially shocking and over the top, and we can imagine these tales as creative exaggerations designed to shock and entertain an audience during an evening of storytelling. They are, perhaps, the most effective at conveying certain lessons that the storyteller wishes to impart upon their eager audience. That is, listen to your elders, never venture alone into the wilderness, and always be on guard in unfamiliar places. And then, of course, there are the tragic stories of people like poor Liz Fagan, who vanished one day and never returned. These stories seem more believable and thus more haunting. There's often no closure for these families, no clue as to what happened, aside from an occasional article of clothing, a sock in a tree or a coat on the ground. A sign, they say, that the fairies had taken them away. Part 4. Living Landscapes and Fallen Angels So far, we've talked about the phenomena of being fairy-led, but we haven't talked about the cause. If we are to believe the stories, or at least take to heart the lessons they offer, it would be easier if we could understand the motive that causes the fairies to lead people astray. So, according to the folklore, who are the fairies? Why do they take people, and what becomes of those who never return? The fact is that no one really knows. It's all part of the mystery of the fair folk, and because it has historically been considered taboo to talk about them, that air of mystery is mistier than most. However, there are a few beliefs about the fairies' nature that are expressed in many of the stories found in Newfoundland, and from those we can glean a little more information. One is that classic interpretation that fairies are sprites or spirits of the natural landscape. They live in the wild, liminal spaces at the edges and between settlements, but also exist in a sort of otherworldly fairyland. It is to that fairyland where they bring humans and attempt to transform them into fairies. Berry pickers and travelers are lured in, and weak old children are snatched from their cradles in an effort to bolster their numbers. How are people transformed? Well, while most who are taken by the fairies cannot recall their abduction, others have scraps of memories of a warm place full of beautiful people, singing, laughter, and, frequently, tables full of delicious-looking food. That's how they get you. Nearly all of the stories about fairies are very clear on this point. Whatever you do, don't eat the food. You may be exhausted, you may be starving. You may have before you the most exquisite spread of all your favorite foods, piping hot and ready to eat. None of that matters. Folk knowledge that dates back to ancient pagan superstitions tells us that accepting hospitality from one's host puts you in their debt. Once you eat the fairy's food, you will become trapped in their world, never able to return. Now, you've likely heard this kind of thing before in the Greek myth of Persephone, who was kidnapped by Hades and dragged to the underworld to be his wife. The six tiny pomegranate seeds that she consumed while she was there bound her to that place, and she was forced to live in that underworld for six months every year, forever. These similarities of the fairy world to the underworld work as a great transition to our next belief that the good people are actually the spirits of the dead, or at least adjacent to them. Dr. Rieti's book, Strange Terrain, includes a number of stories that blur the line between what we might call the fae folk and the souls of the recently deceased. There are tales of encounters with faceless, humanoid figures dressed in black. 
We're warned to avert our eyes and not speak to them, lest they take us along to the underworld. And there are stories where the graveyard is as much a fairy playground as a marsh. In one story from the 1930s, a seven-year-old boy went missing while berry picking. Months later, a group of people were traveling late in the evening when they heard the sound of music, singing, and laughing coming from the graveyard. They went to investigate and saw the young boy dancing there amongst the tombstones, as if in the center of a crowd and holding the hands of an unseen chain of dancers. He vanished moments later, leading many to believe that he had been taken by the fairies. There are so many fascinating stories that are part ghost and part fairy tale, they likely deserve their own episode. The third theory on the nature of fairies is likely the most popular, at least in Newfoundland. In fact, Dr. Peter Narvaez notes that, during an interview, a Newfoundland informant, quote, voiced surprise when an educated folklorist appeared to be ignorant of such a well-acknowledged fact, end quote. That fact was simply this. What we call fairies are actually fallen angels. Either they were the fence-sitters during Lucifer's war on God's kingdom, or they joined the Devil's Rebellion. Cast out from God's kingdom, they were in the midst of falling when God rescinded the order for their damnation, leaving many trapped here on earth, their version of purgatory. While they wait for Judgment Day and hope for God's forgiveness, they live outside humankind's civilization in our forests, bogs, and marshes, and occasionally mess with us locals, sometimes out of boredom and sometimes malice. In some traditions, fairies yearn for and collect human souls, though no one's certain as to why. One of Dr. Rietti's informants explained that fairies take people away to get their souls and that this would make them wiser. Whatever you might believe about the fairies, it goes without saying that you probably want to avoid being taken by them. But how? Part 5. Lost in the Woods Tonight, you've heard many cautionary tales, warning you to be wary while out in the wilderness and avoid the ire of malicious and mischievous fairies. But what does it feel like to become lost in the fairies? What are the signs that you might be in danger? And can you take precautions? Can you stop them before it's too late? The answers can be found in our final story of the evening. I'll ask you to put yourself in the center of the story, in which everything that happens is inspired by actual accounts of people who claim to have been led astray. It's late in the day when your mother comes to you for help. Your cousin is coming for supper tonight, but your cow still hasn't come home. She needs milk for the meal and wants you to find the animal and bring her back. You grab your hat and coat and step outside. The light is purple and soft, casting long shadows on the grass. Some neighbors who passed by had seen the cow grazing in the northern field, so you push through the gate and head up the path, listening for the telltale sound of the bell hanging from her neck that will alert you when she's nearby. The dappled sky, with its rows of puffy clouds glowing orange in the setting sun, looks just like a field of ripe cloudberries. You lick your lips in anticipation of your mother's bake apple pie that is, at this very moment, cooling by the window. Winding your way down the path, you swear you can smell it, a scent of warmth and spice and sweetness. As you reach the edge of the woods, the scent gives way to black spruce and green earth, and you swear the trees are taller than you remember. They loom over the path. High above, the sky is a narrow river of buttermilk suspended on the forest canopy. Did you take a wrong turn? The road feels familiar, but changed somehow. Just when you're thinking about turning around, you crest a hill and see the field far ahead of you through the tunnel of trees. The cow is grazing in the grass, then lifts its lazy head and wanders out of view. You quicken your pace, down a steep hill and up again, 
and then stop. The path has come to an abrupt end. What was, just a moment ago, a tunnel through the woods to an open field, is now blocked by some of the tallest trees you've ever seen. Their narrow peaks tower above you, rocking gently in the wind, choking the last threads of daylight. The sound of a cow's bell rings out to your left, but the massive trunks of trees block your view. Maybe you were mistaken. Maybe the field is just through there, off the path. The sound comes again and again. It's moving slowly away. You're certain it must be just beyond that fallen tree, so you step off the path and onto the acidic forest floor. You weave your way through the trees, following the sound of the bell. It gets closer, then recedes, then seems to twist and change, as if you're in a dream. You hear two bells, three, then a chorus all around you. You know you should turn around and go back to the path, retrace your steps and get home, but you can't. You feel compelled to press on. You hop over a log, then another, then duck under a third, and the ringing stops. You stand still and listen. There is no wind, no birds in the trees, no frogs, no sound at all except for your panicked breathing and the groaning of the ancient trees all around you. Then something more, a faint babbling like a distant stream to your right. Maybe the cow is there, drinking. Maybe not, but at least it would be a landmark of sorts and easy to follow. You walk toward the sound, which grows until it surrounds you, and you realize it's not the sound of water you're hearing, but of beautiful music and voices, dozens of them. A stream of laughter and hushed words in a language you don't know. You circle around, expecting to see someone, but there's nothing but moss and trees and darkness. Then a single voice rises above the rest, cutting through the shadows over your left shoulder. It's the same familiar voice of your cousin calling to you. Hey, over here. Come here, come here. You start to feel dizzy and your vision blurs, even as you turn to face the voice. Something is wrong. You realize you've been fairy-led. You can't control your legs can't stop yourself from turning and walking further toward the voice. You grab at the limbs of the trees around you, but your grasp is weak and the branches slide through your fingers. You know you have just moments before your mind slips and the forest consumes you. What do you do? How can you break the spell? Most Newfoundlanders who know anything about fairies will tell you that your first mistake was leaving home without some bread in your pocket. This is an ancient tradition, imported from Britain, Scotland, and Ireland, that assures us that fairies will generally leave you alone if you have bread on hand. If they still try to mess with you, you simply need to take the bread out of your pocket and toss crumbs in every direction. This will drive the fairies away and counter any illusory magic they may have cast. It's not clear why exactly bread works to combat the fairies. Some say it's nothing more than food you can eat while lost so you don't have to give in to your hunger and consume fairy food. Others say that bread is considered a gift for the fairies and a sign of respect. But many believe that bread is repulsive to fairies because it represents the Eucharist and is therefore considered holy. As the English poet Robert Herrick once wrote, If you fear to be affrighted when ye are by chance benighted, in your pocket for a trust carry nothing but a crust, for that holy piece of bread charms the danger and the dread. Now This concept works especially well if you believe that fairies are really fallen angels. But you know, I suspect this tradition precedes Christianity. Though fairies are thought to bake their own bread and even borrow a cup of flour from time to time, perhaps human-made bread is so repulsive to fairies because, in a way, it represents civilization. Think about how many people and how much work it takes to produce one loaf of leavened bread. 
First, you need to establish a settlement and claim some of the wilderness around you so you can cultivate the land and grow wheat. Next, you need to harvest that wheat and process it with a mill. Then you combine it, traditionally with yeast from a brewer, and knead it into a dough. Finally, you use fire, a unique tool of humankind, to bake the bread and chemically transform it from a mess of ingredients into a staple of the human diet. In this way, bread becomes one of the most mundane yet incredibly complex products of a society, a powerful symbol of hearth and home that you can carry with you to the wilderness. If you don't have any bread, Many suggest that salt, silver, iron, and of course a religious cross or a Bible can be equally beneficial. These too are symbols of society, and salt, silver, and iron have long been known to keep evil influences at bay. A somewhat common practice in certain areas of Newfoundland and Labrador was to punch a hole in a five-cent piece, which was originally made of silver, and either wear it around your neck or sew it into your clothing. With such a simple and cost-effective charm, you could be sure that the fairies would leave well enough alone. Fair enough, but hindsight is 2020, and in this story, you don't have any of this protection. You've encountered trees where none should exist, and have followed an overwhelming urge to wander deeper into the forest. You're close to losing all control of your mind and body, but can still move your hands. So what do you do? Take off your cap, your coat, or your shirt, and turn it inside out, or swap your shoes so they're on the wrong feet. This simple action is often enough to break the spell, and sometimes keep the fairies from attacking in the first place. There are stories of people being hopelessly lost, until they turn their coat inside out and suddenly stumble out of the woods or back onto the trail. Where they saw a sea of trees just a moment before, they suddenly see the lights of their home. Now, before I move on, it's important to note that there are some stories of fairy encounters that don't end in tragedy. In Newfoundland and Labrador, and indeed across the world, there are tales of people who have somehow befriended the fairies. During her research, Dr. Rietti learned of a woman who lived in Grey Cove, next to Green Cove, who apparently went somewhere with the fairies every October. She had special abilities, they said. She could cure you, curse you, and read your palm to tell your fortune. She always kept to herself, though she seemed rather friendly. When the autumn leaves began to fall, she would say, My darlings, I'll soon be going away. Now you won't be able to visit me for a little while. No one knew exactly when she left or where she went, and few people asked. Two weeks later, she would return and look different somehow, thinner, and her face would be changed. If anyone was brave enough to ask her where she went, her answer was simple. My darling, I went with the fairies. One might assume that the fairies bestowed her with the gift of a second sight, as was the case of an informant's grandmother, who, as a little girl, was picked up and swept through the air across a meadow, her heels brushing daisies as she passed. Her father yelled her name backwards three times, and she was released unharmed, but enhanced. She was suddenly able to read tea leaves and predict the future. There are also a handful of stories of children going missing and being helped by the fairies until they're found. These children have been found in the branches of trees they could never climb, far above the freezing snow and tell stories of being fed scraps of food scavenged by the good people who took pity on them. Whether they wandered off on their own or were led astray by the fairies is a question that deserves consideration. Part 6. A Cultural Curiosity Much has been made of the fact that Newfoundland and Labrador is rich with fairy folklore, but it's important to note that these stories and beliefs are by no means universal. The vast majority of the Canadian folklore that's been collected comes from just a small fraction of the island of Newfoundland, known as the Avalon Peninsula. And even then, most of these stories come from a particular area on that peninsula. The community is nestled around Conception Bay, located on the southeast coast of the island and northwest of St. John's. 
My fellow Canadian podcasters, Chrissy and Barry from the Some Weird Podcast, are originally from that area and grew up hearing stories about the fairies. When they decided to do an episode on Newfoundland's fairy tradition for their podcast, they were surprised as anyone to learn that people living in other regions were unfamiliar with the folklore. Though Newfoundland is full of small, tightly-knit communities of people from British, Irish, and Scottish descent, both traditional and more modern tales of fairies seem to be familiar in some places and completely alien in others. The reasons for this are probably best left to anthropologists and professional folklorists, but I wanted to mention one theory that I find interesting, and it has to do with the utility of folklore. You see, no folklore is shared in a vacuum. There's always a reason to tell a particular story. Sometimes it's just for pure entertainment. Other times it's to share a bit about a place's history, its landmarks, or its people and their values. And sometimes a story is shared to influence our actions, to keep us safe, and to warn us of dangers to which we might otherwise be oblivious. Notice how a lot of these fairy stories are about people who went missing while berry picking. Now at first you might think, wow, Newfoundlanders really love their berries, but it's not as simple as that. I mean, yes, I've been to Newfoundland and one thing I miss almost as much as the exceptionally friendly people and the beautiful landscape are the cloudberries or bake apples as some call them. But the berry pickers in most of these stories aren't like you and me, who might casually wander a berry patch on a sunny Saturday. According to Dr. Peter Narvaez in his paper Newfoundland Berry Pickers in the Fairies, some coastal communities relied heavily upon the local berry crop to supplement their diet and keep them alive over the winter. Others harvested berries as an essential part of their income. We're not talking about a couple of containers for pies, jams, and jellies that you might throw in the cellar or give to your neighbor. We're talking barrels and barrels of the stuff, packaged and sold to local merchants or to agents in St. John's. Sometimes, groups of four or five women and their children would venture into the bush and camp there for up to a week just to pick berries. The onset of the Great Depression saw an even greater rise in berry picking. Dr. Narvaez writes how, quote, It was when the development of freezer facilities by the fishing industry, 1927, coincided with the unemployment of the 1930s that the Newfoundland blueberry industry commenced. The ensuing development exploited the availability of inexpensive laborers, both men and women, who either received cash, 10 cents per gallon of blueberries, or more often obtained credit, end quote. With so much relying on these berries, it's no wonder that more and more people began venturing further and further across rough terrain in an effort to find more. And it's no wonder that some of them got lost. This might explain why there seems to be a glut of fairy stories from the 1930s, and it also might explain why the wisdom of fairy folklore was so often shared and taken to heart in these communities. Narvaez also notes that shame and embarrassment might have led some people to claim a fairy encounter. If you and your family, or indeed the entire town, are out picking berries, and you wander from the group and get lost, then those around you will have to stop what they're doing and search for you, disrupting a vital economic activity. Feeling embarrassed that you lost your way and inconvenienced others, you might feel compelled to blame the fairies for your predicament. Narvaez actually quotes the recollection of Hubert Brown Abbott of Newman's Cove as an example of all of these anxieties at the time. Quote, Back in the 30s, there were many people who got lost in the woods. They claimed that the reason they got lost was because the fairies led them astray. There were search parties sent out with lanterns to look for the lost person. They would probably spend most of the night in the woods searching before they would find the person they were looking for. They would find them sitting by a fire, which they would make once they knew for sure they were lost. In most cases, we would find them with their caps turned inside out. Because it was said, if you were led away by fairies, turn your cap inside out and the fairies would go away." End quote. The folks who lived through these times passed on their stories to their children and grandchildren. 
And while wooded areas and swamps still remain a danger, today we can find these warnings in more urban areas as well. Fairies now live by the railroad tracks and near abandoned wells. They play in empty lots, near streets at the edge of town, or in the yard of a questionable neighbor. These are the environmental hazards of the modern day, and often serve as perimeter lines for children to ensure they don't wander too far from home. Most of Canada's recorded fairy folklore was sourced in Newfoundland. But it would be a mistake to assume that similar stories can't be found throughout the rest of the country. They are out there, in every province and territory. They're just harder to find. There are, for example, stories of farmers encountering the moss people in New Brunswick, or finding fairy gold in Nova Scotia, and stories of fairies stealing children in PEI. If you listen to my episode on the vampires of Wilno, Ontario, you might recall that the Kashub people in that region shared stories not just of vampires, but of witches and dwarves as well. And then, of course, there are the many indigenous groups throughout Turtle Island who have, in their oral histories, stories of little people similar to what some might call fairies. Then there are the stories that sound like fairies were involved, but they're never named. In Waterloo, Ontario, for example, there are stories of people going missing in the forest for hours until they sit down and put their shoes on the wrong feet and are suddenly able to find their way home. In British Columbia and the Yukon, you'll find tales similar to those in Newfoundland of people who have been lured into the woods by mysterious voices and overwhelming impulses. In fact, the more you research fairy folklore, the more you can see fairies all around you at least in a figurative sense. It makes you wonder, are stories like these evidence that something strange and supernatural is occurring, or simply that we humans have a talent for finding patterns and meaning where they otherwise might not exist? It's hard to reconcile that an event like a person going missing can be so personally tragic and world-changing, and yet statistically mundane. It's like the difference between seeing the forest and the trees. When you're on a cliff overlooking a woodland, you can see the peaceful landscape, the sun shining down on the uniform trees, and the places where the forest gives way to meadows, mountains, and rivers. But when you're deep in the woods, beneath the shadow of those trees, looking for a hidden path beneath the fallen logs and undergrowth, it's easy to think that some unseen force might be conspiring against you. While recording material in Fortune Harbor, Newfoundland in 1964, folklorist John Widowson asked a local fisherman about fairies. The fisherman replied that he had never seen any fairies in his life. Widowson was about to take that as a denial of their existence when the fisherman added, of course, he had often heard them talking when he was alone on the barrens. Whether fairies exist or not is something you'll have to decide for yourself. As for me, well, I can't say they don't exist, because, of course, someone might be listening. That's it for this episode. Special thanks to Chloe, Jackson, and Lila Rink for their fairy performances. If you liked this one and want to hear more about fairies, maybe changelings or fairy attacks, please let me know through social media or my website. There are also some great resources out there. First, if you really want to dive into the subject of Newfoundland's fairies, I highly recommend you grab a copy of Strange Terrain, The Fairy World in Newfoundland by Barbara Rietti. A special 30th anniversary edition was just published, so check it out! This isn't a paid endorsement or anything, I just really like the book. You should also check out the website and works of Dale Jarvis, a storyteller and author from Newfoundland. And be sure to listen to the Some Weird podcast. They have their very own funny episode on the phenomena of Newfoundland fairies. Until next time, thank you so much for listening, and for joining me in becoming part of a Canadian folk tradition. Now that you know the story, share it. And remember... Next time you're out hiking, carry some bread in your pocket, just in case. <laughs> Fireside Canada is written and recorded by me, David Williams. 
Sound design and mixing is by Brayden Alexander. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider giving this podcast a positive review. If you want to help even further, you can provide story ideas and more through my website. Every little bit helps to keep the fire burning and the library of legends growing. Learn more at firesidecanada.ca.